You're listening to CRST, the podcast from Bryn Mawr Communications. Hello, and welcome to this episode of International Perspectives on Dry Eye Disease. I'm your host, Laura Curryman. In this series, clinicians from around the world are going to comment on some of the under-discussed, under-appreciated aspects of dry eye disease that are sometimes glossed over. In this episode, we'll be reviewing which underlying ocular conditions clinicians should consider when evaluating a patient during a dry eye consultation. In our first episode, we reviewed which underlying systemic conditions were most relevant to dry eye. And in a forthcoming episode, we'll discuss the patient journey and experience. If you missed our first episode, go back in your podcast feed when this episode is finished and check it out. But don't worry, this episode will make plenty of sense if you didn't listen to the first one. And now for our wonderful panelists, I'm delighted to introduce you to Chris Starr, who is an associate professor of ophthalmology at Wild Cornell Medicine in New York. Dr. Starr, thanks so much for joining us. Laura, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. And also, I am so delighted to have Professor Fiona Stapleton. She practices at the University of New South Wales in Australia. Professor Stapleton, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Laura. Thanks for the invitation. And I'm so looking forward to working with you and Chris. I was really struck by Chris Starr's paper. You published it, I don't know, four or five years ago, I think, uh, looking at osmolarity amongst dry symptom patients. And I think this is a useful thing in helping us really look for and think about ocular comorbidities that we encounter in our dry eye patients. Tell us a little bit more about what you found. Yeah, you know, I think uh, I agree with you. I think um, one of the big frustrations in this area for patients and doctors alike over the years has been this kind of disconnect between symptoms and signs and diagnostic tests and so on and so forth. And so I was trying to uh, look at the utility of a very commonly used test, which is the osmolarity test, which many uh, doctors use and ocular surface specialists use pretty routinely. And so what I wanted to figure out was, well, in a patient who has a symptom that sounds very much like dry eye and in a lot of places would be called dry eye and treated as dry eye, and the patient may or may not get better on that treatment. And so I wanted to know if a patient has those symptoms, but their osmolarity test, which I think is a great dry eye test, very, very much a dry eye specific test, well, what do those patients have that's causing these symptoms if it's not dry eye disease? Now, of course, that's a black and white kind of a thing for the study. Yes, you can have a normal osmolarity and still have dry eye in some cases, but, you know, in general, normal osmolarity and symptoms that sound like dry eye, what were the alternate diagnoses that we came up with? These sort of non-dry eye ocular surface disease subtypes is what I call them. It's a long name. Some people say masqueraders, some comorbidities co-conspirators, you know, and again, this, this, mischief uh, makers. Yeah. And that's a, <laughs> the topic for another whole podcast. What do we call all these things? And can we all get on the same page? But in, in a nutshell, you know, the, 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 in this study, uh, there were a number of common diagnoses that were not typical dry eye disease that were, you know, um, attributed to the symptoms, things like conjunctival cholesis, floppy eyelid syndrome, allergy, of course, is a, a, a big one, uh, anterior blepharitis in some cases, uh, things like uh, pinguecula pterygia, um, EBMD, a big one, very commonly missed. And if you're not lifting that upper lid and looking at the super, superior cornea, you're probably missing that a lot. 
Uh, and then more rare ones, uh, SLK and, and various you know, things like that. But those were the, the, the big ones. Um, and then, you know, which wasn't in that study, but would be the logical follow-up would be if you add in an MMP9 diagnostic test and you look at those combinations of osmolarity, MMP9, and symptoms, well, the pluses and minuses and the combinations there, I think, get very interesting very fast. Um, and so that would maybe, you know, in a year or two, when I, if, if and when I publish that, we'll, we'll come back and discuss that. You know, as, as far as, I, I love how you're thinking about this of like, the osmolarity is being a way of looking at the entire lacrimal functional unit, the health of it. Are you in a compensatory phase with MGD rosacea? Um, if there's a heavy MMP9 load and normal osmolarity, is it the compensatory phase? Is there a significant amount of Demodex present, which is so easy to identify just by having the patient look down. I'm impressed that uh, recent reports of 50 to 60% of our MGD patients have evidence of colorettes on the lashes, um, but you'll miss it unless you're actually looking down, ask them to look down, take the nanosecond on an exam. Dr. Stapleton, I'm curious about the nomenclature when we're talking about ocular surface disease, like what do you like to use and why do you call it meibomian gland dysfunction, ocular surface disease, chronic dry disease, dysfunctional tear syndrome? Like what do you like to call it and, and why do you think it matters? I think I like the term ocular surface disease because I think that's kind of all encompassing. Um, and, you know, the subsequent inflammation can be anywhere on the ocular surface. So I think that I think that helps sometimes the patients understand when you're giving them something that say treats their lids. Um, you know, if you've, if you've talked about the ocular surface involving all of these structures, I think that's an easier, um, an easier message for patients to take home. So I would, I would tend to use ocular surface disease, but, but I'd use MGD as a sort of fairly specific term um, as, as required. So I think, I think that, would, um, that would capture most of the, the interactions I would have with patients with these diseases. I agree with that too. I mean, OSD, I think is a much, much better term. I, I, in almost zero patients, do they have one subtype of ocular surface disease? <laughs> you know, if, if you're doing a good exam, which we all are, um, and hopefully educational things like this will get other people to do it as well, but you're always going to find multiple subtypes of OSD. Um, it, dry eye MGD is a, a big one, of course. But that's just one of many that you're going to potentially find if you look and do the a complete ocular surface exam and the diagnostic tests and take a good detailed history, which sometimes can take a while. These patients take a while, but if you do it right, you know, you're going to find multiple subtypes on everybody. And then, of course, you have to, you know, streamline your treatment to kind of address all of those things. And that can add up fast. Yeah. And, and there's a spectrum, right? I mean, we, I think we're getting better at catching people earlier in their disease state. Like, I love it when a soft contact lens intolerant patient comes in. So to me, that's like early in the stage. It's like, oh, golden opportunity to keep this ship from crashing into the rocks later down the road. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Stapleton, do you have anything to add about the contact lens piece? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the whole... Um... Uh, contact lens discomfort. I mean, Chris, you spoke about the sort of symptoms often being a bit non-specific, and I think in our contact lens wearing population, that's that's a huge issue. There are not that many ways the eyes can feel uncomfortable. So, 
all of those things, whether it's contact lens discomfort, whether it's um, uh, contact lens induced dry eye, so, so the dry eye symptoms disappear when the lens comes out, or whether there are other factors, whether it's CLPC or whether you've got lens related factors that are causing, triggering um, ocular surface drying. So I do think I do think that um, you know it, it is very satisfying in contact lens wearers because you you know you obviously look very closely for MGD, um, knowing that they'll get um, my bone gland disease about five years earlier than than somebody without contact lens wear. So we know they're kind of a bit on the edge, and and being able to um, pick that up and, and initiate treatment in a in a timely fashion, I think is a, is a, is a really positive thing that we can do for our contact lens wearing patients. And if you're a laser vision correction surgeon like I am, and a patient comes to you for LASIK or PRK or SMILE because they're having contact lens intolerance, well, you know, don't just jump into a, a, a surgery without addressing the ocular surface issues that are causing the contact lens intolerance because you're probably going to make it worse if you don't address it, you know, prior to surgery, obviously. I agree. You wouldn't cook in a messy kitchen. Why, why would you cut in an inflamed surface, right? It's, uh, and those are associated with uh, problems with outcomes and accuracy and the development of neuropathic pain that we'll talk about in our next section. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we'll look at how these factors might affect patient treatment. Welcome back to the show. I'd like to discuss how ocular history and ocular comorbidities affect treatment strategies for dry eye disease. We talked a little bit in the last section about inflammation and osmolarity and its role as diagnostic tools and tracking progress to therapy. And uh, we talked about it in the preoperative patient, the contact lens patient. But now I want to segue into how that variety of risk factors might be implicated in some of these really challenging ocular surface conditions, such as neurotrophic and neuropathic uh, disease. Professor Stapleton, can you, can you give us some pearls on how you distinguish neurotrophic versus neuropathic disease in our patients? Sure, Laura, thank you. Um, so I guess in, in terms of um, conditions which really interrupt the nerve supply to the ocular surface, some of those conditions might include things like ocular surgery. It might include long-term contact lens wear, uh, things like long-term Riaccutane use, um, exposure to, to UV or other radiation. And quite often, I think what we see is um, initial damage to the nerves on the ocular surface, which we would characterize as kind of nociceptive type pain where we've got damage to the receptors on the ocular surface. Now, in some ways that's um, easy to diagnose with something like an anesthetic test. So topical anesthesia will quieten those ocular surface nociceptors and the pain level will reduce. Neuropathic pain is really resulting from a lesion sort of further back in the sensory system. So um, more peripheral or central processing, and that's not amenable to an anesthetic test. So, the pain will persist with installation of an anesthetic. So that kind of gives some idea of um, the degree of neural damage to the ocular surface. So in terms of um, 
making that diagnosis, it's, it's also possible to use things like confocal microscopy and look for nerve abnormalities. This might be things like microneuromas. It might be abnormal nerve width or density. It might be neurogenic inflammation where we have white blood cells recruited um, adjacent to the corneal nerves, indicating that we've got um, a, a neural response which needs um, at least some anti-inflammatory treatment at that point. So by understanding the, those, those differences, it perhaps helps a little bit more in terms of understanding those treatment pathways that, that would be required. Yeah, and I would even, and, you know, just to truly simplify it to the most basic, you know, for the general practitioner out there who sees these patients every day, you know, this pain without stain, think neuropathic, stain, Without pain, think neurotrophic. And these are combinations of things that everybody does. You take a history and you put in dye, you know, of some sort, fluorescein, lysamine, rose bengal. You're going to encounter these disconnected symptoms and signs. And that's a very rough but very useful rubric to kind of go at these patients and, and start thinking about the nerves, which is something, you know, 10 years ago, very few people did. And it's becoming more and more common now as we learn more about these things. But it's so fascinating. And does the overlay with uh, ocular surgical history give you any tip-offs or clues as to what the what the patient presentation is more likely to be? Yeah, you know, I think that surgery, whether it's ocular surgery, especially corneal surgery, but any ocular surgery can have an impact on the corneal nerves at least for a period of time afterwards. But of course, cataract and, and refractive are the big ones that we think about, especially cataract surgery with uh, a limbal relaxing incision. Let's not forget that you know we still do those. Not everybody gets toric IOLs. And LRIs are often done with femtosecond lasers these days, and those can have a very significant impact on corneal sensation. And it, and you know, it, and it's probably too, too deep for this uh, podcast, but you know, these, surgical things like those incisions can either cause neurotrophic or neuropathic, and then some patients both uh, on a spectrum. So it gets very complicated, which is you know, why you have to have your antennae up, as it were, to be thinking about these things. But the other thing, you know, barring the, the ophthalmic surgery, you gotta also be asking about neurological surgeries. Patients you know, who have had you know, acoustic neuromas removed or, you know, have other neurological conditions that we might not normally ask in an ophthalmic history, you know, things like, um, you know, uh, uh, shingles and um, tumors and radiation for, for things, brain, uh, and then things like fibromyalgia and small fiber neuropathies and things like that. If you, if you ask and, and they're positive on the history, well, that might start leading you down various neurotrophic or neuropathic uh, pathways, but you have to ask, you know, and again, it comes back to this detective work that we talked about before, but you have to ask these questions and, and do a good history, and that's going to help you in every single encounter. That's that's amazing overview of the whole thing, and uh, one thing that I've discovered recently is I need to ask about history of head trauma, concussions, like there's even overlays of that in some of these folks. Totally. Yeah, super interesting stuff. And you know what I love about how as a community we're, we're learning neurotrophic, neuropathic, we're able to you know, share best practices with each other, but also there's treatment options, right? So these, this is where it becomes interesting and why 
we're so excited to share uh, with our colleagues is you know, what we're learning, what we still have to go and like what's available. I find neural stimulation to be really interesting um, in so many times that the corneal nerve subbasal plexus has been disrupted, chronic inflammation, you know, maybe diabetes, you know, maybe contact lens overwear, maybe refractive surgery, whatever it is. And the rheostat's been ripped off the wall, right? There's no control of the quality of, of the tear film, but you can bypass it with some of these neural stimulation modalities. Um, have you come across any situations where you treated a neurotrophic situation and the patient ended up reporting more pain? Yes, I have seen that. And it, usually it's an, if, if you're treating them with something, let's say, Oxervate, where you're sort of trying to reestablish a, a healthy nerve plexus, corneal nerves, well, as those nerves regenerate and get, you know, sort of healthy and normal again, they do start to sense insults, you know, and, and dry eyes and ocular surface disease. And patients will, who were completely neurotrophic prior to treatment, didn't feel anything. That's the pain, uh, stain without pain. As these nerves start regenerating, they start feeling things. And, and that's, a, to, to me, it's a good sign, even though the patient's not thrilled about it. But at least you can reassure them, hey, this is working. Your nerves are coming back and your ocular surface milieu will be in homeostasis and healthy again, thanks to these nerves that you're now <laughs> feeling. I, I love that. I tell my patients that, um, and this is something I borrowed from our mutual friend, Daryl White in, in Ohio. It's like, you got to climb the hill of sorrow before you can get to Happy Valley. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I think it's encouraging to think that there is a happy valley. I think that's a lovely, a yes. lovely. Yes, I think there is hope for a happy valley. What are what are some of your favorite tricks for helping coach that patient through the tough times and the you know what they can look forward to? I think it's about understanding that that they will have flares and they will have good days and bad days, and the aim of treatment is to perhaps to increase the number of good days and reduce the number of bad days. I love that. And, and it's, it's important to ask patients that question because sometimes they'll come back and say, oh, I don't feel any better. It's like, well, tell me more about that. And if you really ask them things like, well, how many days or how, many, how much are you using tears now? Or how many days did you have to avoid screen use? You'll find that that is actually getting better. And you know, pain is like an important protective mechanism, right? It can be dysfunctional, but mother nature makes us forget pain otherwise you would never give birth more than one time <laughs> yeah, that, that's so true and I think um, you, you're exactly right with asking those questions if we just rely on say the OSDI for example the numbers can be exactly the same but the whole you know I, I don't use my drops so much or I can watch tv for longer or I can go to work you know, those kind of um, quality of life related issues are really important to find the specific things that, that are important to that patient and, and really quiz those. So that's, I think that's a great, a great point. I love that. And it's, um, it's interesting to me that when you really get granular about those little micro improvements, you know, if you have enough inches, you eventually get a mile and there were, you celebrate those as part of the recovery. But I find as a clinician that if I'm not even getting those micro improvements, I need to figure out what I missed. Yeah, it's those patients where you really have to start thinking. If you hadn't thought about the nerves before, now that's a good time. When you start scratching your head after two or three visits, 
boy, is it neurotrophic, is it neuropathic, or somewhere, something in between. But you got to start thinking about those nerves and then doing the appropriate, asking the appropriate questions and doing the appropriate tests at the next visit. Check corneal sensation. If you have a confocal, use it. Ask uh, the symptom, symptoms uh, suggestive of neuropathic and neurotrophic. Uh, and then also the history, like maybe dive deeper into that history next time. Look at those medications, look at the history, ask him about the neurological history and things like that. But that's when those questions, at least in my mind, and I'm guilty as, as anyone of kind of missing these types of diagnoses for quite embarrassingly, quite some time, you know, that I should have probably picked it up much sooner, but, you know, went down the wrong path. You know, the dry eye ocular surface uh, MGD path where they really had a, a neuro uh, a problem with their nerves. So I think as we look back at all this great stuff we've talked about, you know, ocular comorbidities in the ocular surface disease patient is multifactorial squared. <laughs> There's like a lot going on here. And the nerves are this really interesting frontier to explore in our post-surgical, past medical history type patients that I think, you know, have needs special consideration, special extra attention. And I know the clinical trials pipeline is robust with new tools for us to help these amazing patients. I can't thank you both enough for being here. I really want to thank Dr. Starr and Professor Stapleton for coming on the show. And I want to thank the listeners for joining us as well. If you missed episode one, go back in your podcast feed to catch up. And if you liked what you heard, be sure that you've subscribed to the podcast so that you can catch episode three as soon as it drops. For now, I'm Laura Perryman, and thanks for listening. <laughs>